Bob Hoskins was a successful, though not overly famous, actor. Um, He played the lead role in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, if you remember that one. He also was Smee in uh, the, the Hook, the, uh, the Robin Williams, Peter Pan movie. Well, in the late 1980s, Bob Hoskins landed what for him would have been a massive opportunity. He, he signed a contract to play the role of Al Capone in the movie The Untouchables. Uh, I presume because that dude looks like Al Capone, like seriously. Uh, But unfortunately for Bob Hoskins, after he signed his contract, Robert De Niro changed his mind and decided he wanted to play Al Capone. And I think if you're making a movie and Robert De Niro decides he wants to be in your movie, I think you put Robert De Niro in your movie. I think it's just the way it works. And all of a sudden, uh, the director... Had a, uh, had a problem on his hands. Um, he had to let Bob Hoskins know that suddenly his opportunity to play opposite Kevin Costner and Sean Connery was gone. Now, he had to pay him his whole salary because he'd already signed the contract, so Hoskins had that much going for him. But Brian De Palma, the, the, the director... He knows how fickle movie stars can be, and he just decided, how's he going to react to missing out on this opportunity? So De Palma wrote him, just wrote him a letter, put his check in the, in the envelope, told him what had happened, and just mailed it. That was it. Sometime later, you know, before cell phones, Brian De Palma's secretary says, you got a phone call. It's Bob Hoskins. And he's like, oh no, how's this going to go? And so he answers, he takes the call, he answers. Bob Hoskins says, hey, it's, it's me, it's Bob Hoskins. I was just calling to see if there were any other movies you didn't want me to be in. Because <laughs> for $200,000, I could be convinced. That's a great response to being left out, to not getting what you really want. Oftentimes, we as human beings don't react quite as well. We have this tendency within each of us to see our life, I've mentioned this before, like our life is a movie and we're kind of the star. And when someone else's star seems to shine a little brighter, when we get left out, when something else happens that we don't like, we don't handle it with grace and aplomb. Well, this morning in 2 Samuel, we're going to read a really long story. I apologize in advance. We're going to read a lot. But we're going to read, this is like a movie that you have to pay attention to the, the twists and the turns and the intrigue. But it's really the story of two men who do not react well to not getting what they want. Two men who see their lives as sort of a movie, and they are the star. Where we pick up in 2 Samuel, Israel is a nation divided. David has been crowned the king of his home tribe of Judah, but the rest of Israel supports King Saul's 
one uh, surviving son named Ishbosheth. But the main characters in this chapter today, or this story today, is a guy named Abner and a guy named Joab. Abner is Ishbosheth. He was Saul's top military commander. He decided in last week's passage, I don't want to see David become king because I've been David's enemy. That will be bad for me. So he's the one that has made Ishbosheth king and is going to try everything he can to really try to keep power for himself with Ishbosheth as a figurehead. He is opposed, Abner is, by a guy named Joab, who is David's top commander and also David's nephew. So that's sort of the team. That's, the, that's who's playing today. And really, it's the story of how Abner and then Joab don't respond well to not getting what they want. We pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, where we just read this. We're going to read a little, talk a little, read a little, talk a little this morning. So now Abner, the son of Ner, went out to Mahanaim, to Gibeon, with the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and we're going to stop right there. Here's what we know so far. The first act of this Abner and Joab story is this. After Saul has died, Abner decides he wants to keep as much power as he can, so he can't let David become king. The first thing he's going to do to try to stop David from becoming king is to try to defeat David militarily. In verse 12, he went out, that is a a figure of speech that meant went to war, against David. Abner is the aggressor. He invades David's turf. Now, it seems to us like civil war has broken out in Israel, but I'll tell you, this is closer to our idea of the Hatfields and McCoys than it is our idea of a civil war. You know what I mean? This is really two families fighting over the throne of a defeated nation. Okay? All right, so Abner's the aggressor. He invades. Next, we're going to read the story of the first battle in this feud slash civil war, beginning in verse 13. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met Abner and his men by the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool or reservoir, Abner said to Joab, now let the young men arise and hold a contest before us. And Joab said, let's do it. Verse 15. So they arose and went over by count 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 from Judah, the servants of David. Each one of David's men seized his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. And so they all fell down on uh, Abner's side. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazurim, or like the place of the breakthrough, which is in Gibeon. That day, the battle was very severe, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Okay, there's the story of the first battle in this feud. Um, Abner and his forces invade. They're discovered. Joab and his men come out and confront them by the cement pond. If for those of you who know the Beverly Hillbillies, some sort of man-made reservoir. They're on either side. And Abner says, hey, let's do this like gentlemen. We'll pick 12 of our guys. You pick 12 of your guys. Let's let them duke it out. That happens. It does not go well for Abner's men. David's men or Joab's men 
seems to me they kill all 12 of them. And then they take off after Abner and the rest of his men. We'll read about that next, verse 18. Now the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab and Abishai and Ashael. And Ashael was as swift-footed as one of the gazelles which is in the field. Ashael pursued Abner and did not turn to the right or the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is that you, Ashael? And he answered, It is I. So Abner said to him, Turn to your right or to your left and take hold of one of the young men for yourself and take for yourself his spoil. But Ashael was not willing to turn aside from following Abner. Abner repeated again to Ashael, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? However, Ashael refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the belly with the butt end of the spear so that the spear came out of his back. And Ashael fell there and died on the spot. And it came about that all who came to that place and saw where Ashael had fallen, they stood still sort of stunned. Okay, so after that initial fracas, David's men under Joab, David's not there, but his, their men take off after Abner's man. They're in hot pursuit. And one of Joab's brothers, another nephew of David's, a guy named Ashael, he spots Abner, the head of the snake, so to speak. And we're told this guy is super fast, right? Like a gazelle. He's like a McNair girl on steroids. And so he's like, I have a chance to go into this thing right away. If I go kill Abner, this whole thing will be over before it gets started. So off he goes. And we don't know many details of what kind of pursuit this is. But somehow Abner has, sees him coming, has a chance to yell, why don't you go chase somebody else, young fella? Ashael says, no way. He just keeps pursuing. Abner again says, I know you're fast and all, but this ain't a track meet. This is war. I don't think you really want to catch me. If you catch me, I'm going to defend myself. And that's what happens. We're told Ashael gets there. This translation says Abner rams the, uh, rams the, the back end of his spear through the guy. There's room to believe it was a backward thrust of his spear, whichever way it happened. Ashael, Joab's brother, dies after being warned in war to try something different. Hang on to that nugget for later. After Abner kills Ashael, remember he's the brother of the high commander Joab, Joab and his men are going to keep up the pursuit as we continue on. Verse 24. But Joab and Ashael, oh, excuse me, but Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And when the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which is in the front of Giah, by the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. The sons of Benjamin, so that's uh, Abner and the boys, gathered together behind Abner, and they became one band, and they stood on top of a certain hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the end? How long will you refrain from telling the people to turn back from following their brothers? Why would you attack your countrymen? 
Verse 27, Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely then the people would have gone away in the morning, each from following his brother. None of this would have happened. But Joab blew the trumpet, and all the people halted and pursued Israel no longer, nor did they continue to fight anymore. Abner and his men then went through the Arabah all that night, and they crossed the Jordan and walked all morning and went home to Mahanaim. Okay. After Abner killed Abishai the track star, uh, excuse me, killed Ashael the track star, Joab and his other brother keep pursuing Abner. They find him on some, uh, some high ground, easy to defend. And it looks like a decisive battle is about to ensue. But then Abner, the aggressor in all this, yells down and basically says, you can't kill me. He says, you know, it's just going to be uh, bitter in the end. Here's what Abner says, or here's what he means. Abner says, if you, Joab, kill me, you actually won't win the objective you're trying to win. What Joab wants is for David to be king over all of Israel. Abner's basically saying, the rest of Israel supports and believes in me. Abner, if you kill me, the sword is going to devour forever. If you kill me, my people up north are never going to support David. And you know it's true. It's just going to be bitter in the end. And Joab hates it. In verse 27, Joab says, if you, if you wouldn't have started this, nobody would be fighting. This is all your fault. But then what does he do? He says, boys, we got to go home. I don't like it, but he's right. And everyone goes home. Verse 30. Then Joab returned from following Abner, and we had, when he had gathered all of his men together, 19 of David's servants beside Ashael were missing. But the servants of David had struck down many of Benjamin and Abner's men, so that 360 of them died. And they took up Ashael and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And then Joab and his men uh, went all night and they went home to Hebron. These verses are here to tell us how the fighting's going thus far. And it's really bad for Abner. Casualty count, he's down 360 to 20. Not great. Let's read just the first verse of chapter 3. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker continually. We have the benefit of looking back on all wars after they have ended, and you can kind of tell the point where the side that lost couldn't win anymore after that point, but you know, they don't realize it or won't admit it. That's where we're at at the beginning of chapter one. Abner cannot win this thing. First and foremost, because God has promised David's going to be king over all of Israel. But even militarily speaking, Abner's whipped. He just doesn't know it. So here's what we're going to see next. We're going to skip a little list of David's sons and wives. We'll talk about them later. 
But Abner, even though he, he's going to realize he can't win, and he's going to figure out, well, there's an old saying that goes like this. If you can't beat him, join him. He's going to figure out the, the way I can still get a consolation prize out of this deal. I may not be able to be king of Israel or more powerful than the king of Israel, but something's going to happen to make him decide, I'm going to go talk to David and see if I can't bargain for myself a good position in his kingdom. So we're going to start in verse 6 of chapter 3 now. So it came about while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul, who's dead now, remember, Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? I'm going to start using that one, by the way. Am I a dog's head that you would... Anyway, I just like that. Today, I show kindness to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and I have not delivered you into the hands of David. And yet today, you charge me with a guilt concerning the woman. May God do so to me, Abner, and more also, if as the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to establish the throne of David uh, over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba, the whole thing. And Ishbosheth could no longer answer Abner a word because Ishbosheth was afraid um, of Abner. Okay. These verses tell us the story of what came to a head between Ishbosheth and Abner that made Abner go all Benedict Arnold on him. First, we're told in verse 6, the whole time during this war that Abner was making himself stronger and stronger in the house of Saul. This tells us outright what we already concluded in the previous passage. Abner really wants power for himself. He's consolidating power behind the king's back. Ishbosheth, I mean, he ain't great, but he's not an idiot. He sees it. He's going to do something about this. And so what he does, he accuses Abner of initiating a physical relationship with one of King Saul's harem, is what we would call it. And that accusation is not primarily for them a moral accusation of a moral wrong. This is political treachery. This is like a, a coup attempt. Because, and we'll see this later in 2 Samuel, for someone else to uh, take a portion of the king's harem for himself is tantamount to saying, I'm the captain now. I can do whatever I want. Like if you can do that to the king's harem, you're sort of saying, I'm really the king. Does that make sense? That's what Ishbosheth accuses Abner of doing. Now, we have no indication one way or another whether or not this is true, whether Abner actually did this. What we do know is as soon as Ishbosheth accused Abner of doing it, Abner's like, I'm out. For one of two reasons. One, Abner could have been guilty. Abner could have done this 
and thought, man, once word gets out that I've done this, maybe I'll start to lose support. I better go bargain with David now before I lose some of the cards I'm holding. But I think it's more likely Abner looks at Ishbosheth and sees a familiar pattern in Ishbosheth. Who was Ishbosheth's dad again? This is all so confusing. There's so many people. Who was Ishbosheth's dad? King Saul. Do you remember back when David was one of the top military commanders under King Saul? And David started to get more popularity and notoriety than Saul? How did Saul start to treat David? He started to accuse him of treachery and treason and plotting to kill the king. Do you remember that? I think what happens here, Ishbosheth delivers that just like his daddy would have done. And when Abner sees that, Abner goes, oh, heck no. Like, I am not sticking around for this. I've seen this movie before. I'm not about to stick around and play the role of David. And he tells Ishbosheth as much. You've made your last mistake. I'm going to go talk to David. And I'm going to convince all of our people to support him as king. He doesn't visit yet. He sends messages toward David in verse 12 of chapter 3. Then Abner sent messengers to David in his place, saying, Whose is the land? David, make a covenant with me. And behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all of Israel over to you. And David said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But I demand one thing of you, namely that you... You will not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my, my, my wife Michael, to whom I was betrothed for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. That's an old story from 1 Samuel. Verse 15 Ishbosheth sent and took Michael from her current husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her weeping as he went. And he followed her as far as uh, Bahurim. And then Abner said to him, get lost. Michael's going with David. And so he did. Okay. Notice in these verses, if you were here last week, Abner still thinks of himself as the kingmaker. In last week's passage, Abner made Ishbosheth king. Who does he think he can make king now? David. He's still scheming, posturing to get himself the best position. I can make you king. You make a covenant with me, David. Give me what I want, and I'll go tell all of the northern tribes to accept you as king. And look what David says in verse 13. He says, deal. David, for the rest of this chapter, is going to decide that diplomacy is better than muscle. You ever notice how sometimes over the course of history, our government has made some deals with some pretty rotten individuals? It's pretty easy to set in judgment. It's pretty easy to, I'd never, I'll tell you what we ought to do with that guy. We ought to drag him out in the streets, right? The good king right here sees this for what it is. He knows Abner. He's known him a long time. But David knows right, wrong, or indifferent. The people in those northern tribes are going to do what Abner says. 
And if Abner tells them to support me as king, they will. So David makes the deal. One condition, he says, I want my first wife back. Michael was King Saul's daughter. Um, King Saul made Michael a political pawn. And tragically, she still is. And David uses her for that as well. David wants to reestablish the connection between him and the house of Saul. If there would be a son born to David and Michael, that son would have an airtight uh, claim to the throne of all of Israel because he would be the son of king of Judah and northern tribes. It won't happen, but that's what David wants. Let's move on. Um, David and Abner are going to get down to business. Abner is going to come visit. Oops. Verse 17. Now, Abner had a consultation with the elders of Israel, saying, In times past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of their enemies. Abner also spoke in the hearing of the tribe of Benjamin. And in addition, Abner went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and to the whole house of Benjamin. Then Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron. And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, let me arise and go and gather all of Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you, that you may be the king over all of Israel, all that your soul desires. And so David sent Abner away and he went in peace. The beginning of this paragraph Abner goes all over to the tribes that don't accept David. He tells him, you've been talking for a long time that you should have David as your king. Now's the time. Do it. Goes back and tells David, that's what I've done. Um, notice, Abner knows God wants David to be king. He's known it all along. Abner just wasn't willing to work in that direction until he thought it benefited him also. They come and have a meeting. They cement the deal. They shake hands. Don't miss this. And by the way, if you miss it now, the, the, our author is going to repeat it about three more times. David sent Abner away in peace. That doesn't mean David just bid Abner good day, have a good one. This is immunity from the king. Protection. Um, which, is, which makes what Joab... David's commander does next so treacherous. Verse 22. And behold, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. By the time they got back, Abner was not with David in Hebron, for David had sent Abner away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him arrived, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to King David, and David sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why then have you sent him away and he's already gone? You know Abner the son of Ner. 
You know he just came here to deceive you, to learn of your going out and your coming in, find weaknesses, find ways he can exploit this situation. Verse 26, when Joab came out from David, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought Abner back from the well of Sirah, but David did not know it. And so when Abner returned to Hebron, David took him aside into the middle of the gate to speak with him privately. And there, Joab stabbed Abner in the belly so that Abner died on the account of the blood of Ashael, Joab's brother. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall on the head of Joab and on Joab's father's house. May there not fall uh, uh, from the house of Joab one who ha- may there not fail to be from the house of Joab, one who has a discharge, one who is a leper, one who holds a distaff, one who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. May all of his kids uh, have something really wrong with them. That's what he said. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Ashael to death at that battle back in Gibeah. Okay. David's nephew Joab and his top military commander, Joab, when he learns David has met with Abner and made a deal with him and granted him immunity and protection, he loses his mind. He says, what is wrong with you? You know you can't trust Abner. You know what he's all about. And then Joab, behind David's back, murders Abner. Now, how he spins that murder is this. Hey, I'm just avenging my brother Ashael. Abner killed my brother. I have a right to kill him. That holds no water for several reasons. First, like our authors made really clear, David the king has made a covenant with this man, given him protection. If the king is at peace with this guy, everybody has to be at peace with this guy. David's got a little fledgling government he's trying to get off the ground. If this becomes commonplace, I as king offer people immunity and then other members of my henchmen murder the guy, it's gonna be pretty hard for my government to make friends, right? Second, uh, if, if you go back and read the story, Abner killed Joab's brother in war after repeated warnings not to come attack me. Not the same thing as murder, correct? And finally, he does it in Hebron, which is a city of refuge. Even if it was a justified killing, you still can't seek vengeance inside a city of refuge. So now King David has a mess on his hands. His, one of his best friends and his nephew is Joab. All Joab did is kill David's enemy. What's David going to do? Is he going to resort, resort to cronyism? Where the people on my side are innocent and we'll figure out why later? Or is David going to do what's best for the kingdom even if it's not good for his friends. That's what David does. Starting in verse 28, he declares him and his kingdom innocent of this death. Uh, 
Moving on now in verse 31. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, you guys tear your clothes, gird on sackcloth, and lament before Abner. He forces them to mourn the guy they just killed. And King David walked behind the buyer. David's going to lead the funeral. And that's how, verse 32, that's how they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. The king chanted a lament for Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put in fetters. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept over Abner. Verse 35. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat something while it was still still daylight. But David vowed, no, I'm doing full-on mourning like I would mourn one of my family members. May God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else before the sun goes down. And all the people took note of it and it pleased them. Just as everything that, that the king did pleased all the people. And that's how, verse 37, all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the will of the king to put Abner, the son of Ner, to death. And the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? Joab's treachery put David in a really difficult spot. It really could have caused all those northern tribes to say, I'm not going to ever be a part of those murderous thugs. And so David curses Joab, forces him and his men to mourn, composes, delivers, leads the funeral so that everyone knows, you know, this wasn't, this wasn't my doing. And that's, that's the story. What does a, a weird and complicated story like that teach you and me today? Can we really learn anything for us today from that complicated story, we can. Here's four things I want you to learn from this passage. First, from Abner, we're reminded in this passage that it is always foolish to oppose the kingdom in search of something better. It's always foolish to oppose the kingdom in search of something better. Here's Abner. Did Abner know that God wanted David to become king? Yes. But Abner thought, seriously though, there'll be something better in my life if I work towards something else besides what God says is best. Can we be like Abner? Only every single day. Haven't you ever felt like I know God says this is best, but in this case, I think I can have something even better. My life will be kind of lame if I just pursue what God says is best. It's always foolish when we decide there's actually something better than what advances this kingdom, than what agrees with our king. Second, also from Abner, 
we learn it's, it's really easy to fall into the trap of trying to use the kingdom only when we need it. It's really easy to fall into the trap of just trying to use the king and his kingdom only when we need it. Here's Abner's story. Eventually, Abner decided, oh, wait, I think I want David to be king. But when did he come to that realization? When he decided, it was now this would be better for me if I work to make David king. That's a really terrible pattern that we fall into all the time. See if this sounds familiar to anyone else here besides me. I just kind of ignore the king and his kingdom and do my own thing until suddenly I find myself in a real mess. And then what do I, then what do I want all of a sudden? I think I want the king to go to work, right? I think I want to be all about the kingdom. When really, when really maybe we don't. Really maybe what we want is the king to use his power to get me out of this mess I got myself in so I can go back to ignoring him the way I was when I got into the mess to begin with. I tell this story all the time because it's one of my favorite illustrations. A pastor told it. This really rough biker came in bawling pouring his heart out to the pastor because his wife had left him. And at some point, the biker said, I, I want to become a Christian. And the pastor took a deep breath and said, no, you don't. I said, what do you mean? And the pastor said, you just want your wife to come back. You don't want to be a Christian. Those two things aren't the same thing. Going into the service of the king means... I want the king more than I want anything else. I want to pursue what the king says is best, whether it's easy, whether it's hard, whether it's comfortable, whether it seems to benefit me or not. Third, from Joab, sometimes we need this reminder. We can't advance the kingdom while disobeying the king. Joab, David's nephew, I have no doubt that he thought killing Abner would be best for David in the kingdom. I think he, was do, he thought he was doing a public service. Now that David, he tries to get all noble and diplomatic. Let me show him how he should handle this, right? He thought he was advancing the kingdom, but you can't advance the kingdom and disobey the king at the same time. We might say it this way, the ends do not justify the means. How many, how many of us, how many times have we thought something like this? Well, I'm going to get back to being on the straight and narrow right after this. Um, I know, I, I really want what, what God wants in this certain instance. This is probably just in this, right? We are never advancing the kingdom and living for the king while disobeying what he says. And finally, from David, who, who usually, who lots of times points toward Christ. From David, we learn this, the good king will always be about his kingdom. And when David is the good king, now he's a sinner too, more on that later in the book. But when David is acting as the good king, he's always about what's best for the kingdom. 
and Jesus is always about his kingdom. Here's why it's important for us to remember that. God has forgiven all of our sins like we talked about earlier. But that doesn't mean God is like for us when we're not about his kingdom. Do you know what Jesus is always for? Jesus. Don't take my word for it. Take Paul's. Colossians 1. All things in heaven and on earth were created by Jesus. All things. Visible things, invisible things, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. All things were created through him and, what's the next word? For him. Everything in my life and around my life is for Jesus. That's, that's what we have to remember to keep from falling into these three things because we have the tendency to think it's for me. We have a tendency to think my life is about me. It's like a movie and I'm the star. So how do I figure out how to get the best, how to collect, how to whatever? We have to remind ourselves, wait a minute. We're supposed to be about the king. If you don't remember anything else from this really long, complicated sermon, let's remember this. I am not the point. Jesus is. The king is. He is about his kingdom and the church that will make it up one day. Our job is to get ourselves as best we can every day in line with our king in advancing his church and his kingdom. That's when we are in lockstep with Jesus because the good king is always about his kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father, um, these really old stories that don't make a lot of sense when we read them the first time, in some ways still kind of wind up being like our story. Because all of us here, all of us here, Lord, have uh, made the foolish decision to uh, pursue something we think will be better than what you say is best. That makes us like Abner. God, we fall into that trap where we ignore you until we think we need you. We decided to try to serve you when secretly we think those are the times that will actually just benefit like us and our, what we want. That also makes us like Abner. Lord, we fall into times where, like Joab, we think we're doing what is best while we're being disobedient. How messed up our thinking gets sometimes. But God, we're reminded by your servant David that the good king is always about the kingdom. And if we want to be in lockstep with you, instead of begging you and asking you to make our path straight over here, we should just dive into the path you have your church and your kingdom already on. Because then we can know we are walking 
with you. God, show us in our individual lives how we're doing the first three. And thank you that you will always take us back into your service in your kingdom. We long to see you reign. May your kingdom come. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.